All right. Well, it is a blessing to have Pastor Roland Hammett with us. And um, I, I, th I think that he's more comfortable this year than he was the last time he was here. He's going back to wearing his cowboy boots. The <laughs> <laughs> uh, first time I met him, he had cowboy boots on. And, you know, when he came here the last time, he never wore cowboy boots one time. I think he's a little more comfortable now. He realizes that we wear cowboy boots here, too. I don't, but, you know, other people do. <laughs> but uh, we've appreciated his, his ministry and appreciate his preaching, expository preaching. I was talking to him the other day about, a, I noticed, you know, they have a Facebook page, and I noticed they had a preacher in that I know of I've never met. I've read he's written quite a few articles. He was bivocational in the pastorate, and, and um, of course, I was talking a little about it, and he said, well, he, he preaches expositional, and that's what we like. And that's what we like. Expositional preaching makes for growth in the Christian life. And so we appreciate him and his ministry. Brother, you come and preach to us tonight. Appreciate it. We'll get you to wear cowboy boots sooner or later. <laughs> Honestly, the, I think the reason I didn't have cowboy boots last time I was here is because we had our minivan and all six of our kids, and there wasn't room for cowboy boots. There was just room for one pair of shoes. So when I'm traveling with, uh, with just Titus, we have a little more room for stuff because I always wear cowboy boots. <laughs> in fact, Brother McIntyre, who he was talking about was just with us, told me a story about how he, he's born and raised in Houston, and his wife would never let him wear cowboy boots. And a few years ago, he was attending a preacher's meeting that I was at, and he was sitting across the aisle behind me, and he looked across, and he saw my cowboy boots, and he elbowed his wife, and he said, look at that. If a guy from Pennsylvania can wear cowboy boots, can't a poor boy from Texas get some? And his wife let him get some cowboy boots. So I felt like I, I did something valuable in the world, helping, helping a Texas guy get some cowboy boots. Turn in your Bibles tonight to John chapter 14. Really, it's a joy to be here, and uh, we enjoyed a couple years ago when we were able to be with you and and got to know you folks a little better. It's our privilege as a church to support the Francis family in Taiwan, and uh, we really appreciate the opportunity to partner with you and fellowship with you in the gospel in that way. We, we appreciate their ministry there, and I know that it's been a difficult couple of years for them, uh, like it has been for everybody. And so... Uh, just know that we're standing with you in regards to their ministry, and we look forward to how God will continue to bless them. Tonight we find ourselves in John 14. This morning I, I spoke to you for a little while about the cost of discipleship. And with the Lord's help tonight, I'd like to speak to you a little bit more on that topic of being a disciple, a follower of Christ. And this evening I'd like to address the topic of the constraint or the reason to be a disciple. Because if you listened to the message this morning and you thought about the cost of being a disciple, in some ways people might be tempted to say, what's the point? 
I mean, that's a high cost to pay for following Christ, and it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of benefit. It doesn't seem like there's much that you get out of it. And, you know, what, what would be the reason then to follow Christ? And we want to address that tonight. What would be the motivation or the reason to be a disciple? John chapter 14, and we're, we're dropping here in the middle of the chapter, beginning in verse 15, right in the middle of this discourse that Jesus is having with his disciples in the upper room just before he goes to the cross. It's a, it's a message of preparation. He's speaking about a number of principles which will be important to them uh, as he is going to the cross. And then uh, their relationship with him is going to change in, in some ways in the sense that he's going to ascend back to heaven and he's preparing them for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And uh, just some really significant doctrinal thoughts here in John 14 and 15. But as we direct our attention to John 14, verse 15, I'd like to read then down to verse 26. And you follow along as I read this evening. The scripture says, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. Now, as I mentioned, some people hear about the cost of being a follower of Christ and they, they ask the question, and it's a good question to ask, what would possess someone then to be a follower of Christ? If in following Christ you can anticipate hardship, difficulty, privation, loss, uh, if you can anticipate persecution and, and some of these types of things, and, and if it seems as if there's not going to be much for you in this life, then, then why would you become a follower of Jesus? And understand that these individuals that Jesus is talking to, these are the true disciples. These are the ones who've been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, and, and they're going to continue on after Jesus goes to the cross. They're going to be the ones who are going to take the message of the gospel to the world, and they're going to turn the world upside down. So he's talking to the faithful ones. 
but he's reminding them about why they have followed him. And, and really, what we want to deal with tonight is the principle concerning the strongest motivator that we have. You see, there is a motivator of fear. And there are ways that fear can motivate us to do or not do certain things. For instance, if we fear loss, then we might respond in a certain way. But fear is not a very strong motivator or a long-lasting motivator. And as soon as we feel that the risk has passed, then we'll generally revert to our former behavior. So fear is not a great motivator. Sometimes we're motivated by rejection, uh, by the fear of rejection, and so we, we, don't, we want to have approval of others, and this we would call this the fear of man. We know from the book of Proverbs that the fear of man bringeth a snare, and so uh, that's not a very long-lasting motivator. It doesn't, doesn't cause us to change our behavior for very long. But what is a very strong motivator and what tends to last a long time, it's an enduring kind of a motivator, is the motivation of love. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples on the basis of them being motivated by love for him. We know in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 18, the scripture says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. So some people will start out to follow Christ because they fear what might happen. They fear the consequences maybe of, of, of not obeying the Lord, of not living according to his word. But again, that's going to be a weak motivation. What is a stronger motivation? That may be something that, that uh, gets our attention and initially gets us interested in the things of the Lord. But we need to move from that motivation to a motivation of falling in love with Jesus. Because when we love him, when, when, we are, uh, when we are motivated by pleasing Him, now, now it's going to change the way that we follow after Christ. And Jesus is addressing this question when He's speaking to His disciples because, you know, in John chapter 14, what the disciples don't know, but what Jesus does know, is that things are getting ready to get very, very difficult for them. It's going to be just a matter of hours until Jesus goes to the cross. Their world is turned upside down. And then um, almost immediately following that, they're going to go into hiding for fear that they're going to lose their lives. And actually, by the time of Jesus' ascension, just before the day of Pentecost, there's going to then, by the time of the day of Pentecost, just like 50 days after this, there's going to be a strong persecution that is going to be, become enacted against these disciples. And, and, and so in reality, they're just a couple of months from their lives being completely turned upside down. And what they're going to need to remember is, you started following Christ because you love Him. And that love needs to be your motivator. That love needs to be what gives you a sense of purpose in following Christ. And I want to say to you tonight, you need to fall in love with Jesus and let that be your motivator. Too often, we're concerned about doing things because of what other people will think. And I'm not saying that we should just totally dismiss what other people think, 
But that's not a very strong motivation because the honest truth is if you just do things a certain way because you're concerned, for instance, about what your pastor thinks, well, then you'll revert to whatever behavior is more comfortable to you or what you really want to do when your pastor's not around. So that's not a great, that, that's not a great standard. You, you, need to, you need to check your motivation. But when you're in love with Jesus, it's going to change the why of that, that, that really is driving the what in your life. The things that you're doing will be done with the right purpose. Now, notice in verse 15, he says this, If ye love me, keep my commandments. And I want you to see, first of all, that there is a relationship between loving and following. Now, we know this is true even in earthly relationships, right? Uh, We know that when you love someone, it, it motivates you to be willing to do things that you might not do for anyone else, but because you love them, you're willing to sacrifice for them, Maybe, maybe to uh, defer to their preferences because you love them, because you want to please them. And, I, you know, I think about a husband and wife relationship, and when two people fall in love and they get married, there's a lot of changes. A lot of times when I'm doing premarital counseling, I try to, I try to prepare couples for this. There's a lot of changing that's getting ready to happen. You think, both of you think, that you're going to get married and go into this marriage and everything in your life is just going to stay exactly the same. And it's not going to happen because your lives, both of your lives, are going to dramatically change. You're going to be in a constant process for a period of time of adjusting to one another, adjusting to one another's preferences, uh, learning how to please the other person. And why do you do that? Because you love that other person, because you want to please them. Now, Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you really love me, then you will be interested in doing what I say. One of the things that concerns me is when someone who calls themselves a Christian is looking to find the bare minimum of what they can do. When they're trying to find a loophole around the commandments of God, when they're trying to find a way to to just get by with, with the least amount possible, because what concerns me about that is I fear that they don't really love the Lord. I fear that they're just, they're just uh, maybe conforming to an outward standard to please someone else, and it's not really a matter of from the heart wanting to please the Lord. We follow the Lord because we love Him. You'll notice in verse 15 that there is a conditional if that is used. If ye love me. The, the fact that Jesus used a conditional word at the beginning of this tells us that there is question about whether or not we love him. There's question about the commitment of our love to him. And the reason for this is because love for Christ does not come naturally to us. It goes against the grain of our flesh. It's contrary to what we would naturally want to do to love the Lord. And so it's not just something that we should assume. I think we have this idea, well, if somebody's a Christian, if somebody goes to church, then they must love the Lord. Not necessarily. And, and, and in each of our lives, and I'm not casting doubt upon your profession of faith tonight, but even if you're genuinely saved, there will be seasons when your love for Christ can wane. And so he says here, if you love me, 
And I want to ask you the question tonight, do you love him? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ supremely? Is he number one in your life? And that's a question that we have to constantly be evaluating in every one of our lives. So in verse 15, he says, if ye love me, keep my commandments. Now, you might have noted as we were reading through the text that in various forms, the word keep is used throughout this passage in regards to the commandments of the Lord. And there's a need to keep his commandments. That word keep that is being used is a very specific word that has the idea of keeping a close watch on something with your eyes. It means to be focused on something. It's not so much the idea of guarding like you would guard a fortress as it is of keeping it in your sight. And that's really the idea, keeping the commandments of the Lord in your sight or in your mind to where you're thinking frequently about what would the Lord want me to do in this situation? How would the Lord want me to behave in this situation? And the reason you do that is because you love the Lord. Because you want to honor Him, then you want to constantly be thinking about, okay, what would the Lord want me to do? And and to go back to an illustration of marriage, this would be like, honestly, um, you know, since my wife and I have been married uh, just over 19 years, so we'll be celebrating our 20th anniversary next year. And so... To be honest with you, I sort of remember what it was like, life was like before we got married, but not really, because we've been together a long time, and our lives have kind of just melded into each other, and and what has happened, and and we were like-minded in many ways before we got married, but now that we've spent so much time together, we just are even more like-minded, and so, like, I go to the grocery store, and my wife is... Um, a little bit of, of a, a health nut or whatever you want to call it. All right? She's, she likes to be careful about what we eat and buy things with good ingredients and all that sort of stuff. And so uh, the brother was talking about how people from Lighthouse don't drink soda or something like that. And we don't drink soda at our house. We're not allowed. And, uh, you know, and I don't mean that in a, in a bitter way. All right. I, I mean, uh, what's happened is that as, as she has had an influence on me, and I have had an influence on her. And, and when we, uh, Titus and I just went to the store before we came here to the service to pick up a couple of things. And, and so what do I find myself doing? Well, I pick things up and I read the ingredients to see what's in it. Now, I'm, I guarantee you, before I got married, I never once looked at the ingredients of anything that I ate. I couldn't care less. Here's what I cared about. Did it taste good? And if it tasted good, it's for me. But now... My wife's not even here, and she wouldn't be upset with me for buying something different, but I just naturally think about what would Allison be looking for? What what would she be interested in buying? What kind of food would she want Titus to eat? And the reason is because I love her, because our lives are so connected together that it's almost like I can't even think about deciding something without thinking about how that would affect her or what she would think about it. And you know, that's how it ought to be with the Lord and our relationship with the Lord. It ought to get to the place where everything about us, the decisions that we make, we always have in view this idea, what would the Lord want? What would please the Lord? What would would God want me to do in this situation? Because I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. If I love him, 
that will be the way that I'm thinking. In verse 21, he says something kind of similar. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So you know that there in verse 21, the person who has the commandments of the Lord and who keeps them, and it's the same idea of the word keep there, to regard with the eyes, to keep before you, to always be looking at and considering, he it is that loveth me. So how do we know who loves the Lord? It's the person who is interested in honoring God and obeying his commandments. So no matter how loudly someone says that they love the Lord, if with their life they are disregarding God, disregarding his commandments, living in rebellion to what he says, their life is telling the truth about who they really love, and it is not the Lord. And that's what Jesus is saying to us. So if you have the commandments of the Lord, if you are going out of your way to obtain and understand the commandments of the Lord so that you can follow them, then you could say, you know, I love the Lord. But if you find yourself trying to find a way around doing the will of God so that you can have your own way, so that you can live your own life, then what you're finding out about yourself is that you actually love you more than the Lord. And just so you understand, that's what is actually natural. That's our default setting. In our Christian life, that's what we're struggling against. This is actually what it means to follow Christ. When Jesus said that we are to take up our cross and follow him, part of that idea of taking up our cross is to deny ourselves. It is to put aside our desires and to put his desires first. And so we see that there is a strong relationship between loving and following. When you love someone, you want to be with them. When you love someone, you want to honor them. When you love someone, you don't want to just go against them for no reason. And that's how it ought to be with the Lord. Notice again in verse 23, he says something again, very similar. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words. Do you see that? He will keep my words. So it's a very clear statement. If you love the Lord, you'll keep his words. If you're not keeping his words if his words mean nothing to you, if, if the commands of God are, are something that you would rather not consider, then you don't love the Lord. You can't, you can't claim both. You can't say, well, I live my own life and I love the Lord. No, you can't. It's impossible. You have to, you have to regard his words if, in fact, you love him. If someone has no interest in the words or commandments of Christ, or if his commands are grievous to them, then it's a good indication that actually they do not love Christ at all. Now, several thoughts as we think about these verses. First of all, our love for God grows from our understanding of His love for us. And and this is one of the beautiful things about having a relationship with God is it was not us who initiated that relationship. It was Him who loved us first. It was Him who demonstrated or commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And 1 John 4, 19 makes it so clear when it says we love him because he first loved us. He's the one who loved first. We respond to his love. And by the way, 
you may think that you love him an awful lot, but your love for him will always pale in comparison to his love for you. You will never give anything that will exceed what he has already given to demonstrate his love for you. So our love grows when we understand his love for us. I encourage frequently people who are struggling in the area of sanctification, struggling in their relationship with God, rather than hammering on the rules, I try to back up and say, you know what? I think first you need to evaluate the the reality of your relationship with Christ. And second of all, you need to meditate on what Christ has done for you. Because when you begin to comprehend and understand his love for you, all of a sudden the things that seem so difficult to follow don't seem like that big of a price, actually. It seems like, okay, if he loved me that much, then I ought to love him in return. We see, second of all, that those who love God will be interested in following Christ and keeping his commandments. And that's clearly what Jesus stated. He said, if you love me, then you will keep my commandments. Now, love for Christ does not guarantee that you'll be perfect, but it will result in a pursuit after perfection. We have a plaque hanging somewhere in our academy that says, direction, not perfection. And that's a good thought. You know, what God is interested in is, are we seeking after him? We realize that we have not yet attained. We have not yet become like Christ in every way, but our heart ought to be directed that way. Our desires ought to be directed that way. We ought to be moving in that direction. When you fall in love with Christ, your wants will be changed from wanting to please yourself to wanting to please Christ. You'll get to the place, or you should get to the place, where you'll begin to realize that your selfish desires are actually self-harming, and that pleasing Him is what you need the most. Pleasing Him is going to bring the deepest satisfaction. It's going to bring the deepest fulfillment. It's going to help you to live a life which will be satisfying not only to Him, but also to you. But that's a radical transformation that has to take place in your thoughts, because our default setting, according to Ephesians 5.29, is... No man ever yet hated his own flesh. We are selfish. We live for ourselves. We live for our own ambitions. We do the things that we want to do, when we want to do them, how we want to do them. And God is in the process of transforming us from being self-pleasers to being Christ-pleasers. And he wants to change us into his image steadily in that way. Now, third of all, as we think about this idea of the relationship between loving and following, those who refuse to keep God's commandments or disdain the commandments of God are demonstrating that they actually do not love God. So when someone demonstrates that that they're not interested in the commands of God, when they say, oh, that's that's too hard, that's too difficult, that's too much, I I don't think I'm interested in doing that, what they're demonstrating is that there is a shortfall in their love for Christ. When we see ourselves struggling in this area, struggling with following Christ, we see, okay, here's what God wants me to do, but I'm struggling. I'm having an internal struggle with that. The reason we're having that struggle is because it is a love issue. 
It's not a law issue, it's a love issue. Many times we get focused on the law and we want to argue about the law, but we need to back up and think about our love first and say, okay, is my heart in the right place? Is it where it ought to be? By the way, when we, when we learn to serve God out of a spirit of love instead of to the letter of the law, we will find that we will be attaining to or aspiring to higher levels of holiness, not lower levels of holiness. There's this idea today that, you know, if you really, if you really figure out who God is and how God relates, you know, you can just throw all those things to the wind. No, there's an awful lot of commands in the New Testament. People say, well, you know, those commands in the Old Testament, they're done away with. Well, I think we could discuss about that. But honestly, even if you did do away with all those commands in the Old Testament, there's an awful lot of things that are in the New Testament that God expects out of his people. And so to say there's no commands, that there's no injunctions for us to follow would be erroneous. But see, when people are just trying to keep the letter of the law, then that indicates a problem with love. Now, I, w- I want to go back to the marriage illustration. Imagine if my wife said to me, you know, honey, I've noticed that you've been talking to this lady a little bit too much, and it concerns me about our relationship because you've been talking to her too much. And then imagine if I said to her, well, how much is too much? What are the rules? What am I allowed to do? What, where, where are you drawing the line? Because, you know, I, I, I think that I should be allowed probably to continue having a relationship with her. And I'd like to take her out to lunch, you know, once a month or so. I mean, what's the problem with that? We're not going to do anything wrong. I mean, surely you don't see a problem with that. Now, if I started talking to my wife that way, would you think that there was a problem in our relationship? And if there wasn't before, that there would be after? Well, sure, because the way I should respond is if I really love her and and that catches me off guard, what she says, and I didn't realize that there was anything there, how I should respond is, whoa, I had no idea. I'm sorry. I I need to cut that off completely if that's causing a problem in my relationship with her. Why? Because my relationship with my wife is a priority relationship. I could stop having a relationship, you know, any sort of relationship with anyone if, if I need to in order to preserve my relationship with my wife. You understand what I'm saying? So if my, if my relationship with my wife is a priority relationship, how much more should my relationship with God be a priority relationship? But then God you know, he'll put his finger on something in our life and he'll say, you know, I'm, I'm jealous of this. And you know, the Bible says he is a jealous God. It's actually, it's actually proper for him to be jealous because he'll put his finger on things and he'll say, you know, I, you love this more than you love me. And what do we do? Well, sometimes we get defensive with him and we say, what do you mean? Where's the line? I mean, I need to know the rules. Well, wait a second. What is that telling us about our heart? That's telling us that what we're after is the letter of the law instead of really wanting to honor God. Are you following me? So when you love the Lord, you're going to follow him. Those two things go together. You can't love him and not follow him. 
And if you're not following him, you don't love him. So he gives us this relationship, and and that's a lot of what he's talking about in these verses. But then second of all, he reminds us about loving and following. Because the Lord knows how easily our attention is drawn away from that which is really important, that is our relationship with God and following him, Jesus assures his disciples that he is going to help them to be reminded about their need to love him and follow him. And you say, how is he going to do that? Well, look at verse 16. He says, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Now, the title comforter, it's a name that refers to the Holy Spirit and to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, particularly to New Testament believers. It's very unique. And that idea of the comforter is of one who comes alongside to exhort, of one who comes alongside us to encourage. We think of the word comforter to primarily have to do with making us feel better, to console. And that is one aspect of comforting. But there is also a biblical sense where comforting means someone who says, hey, let's go and do this together. And this is a a dynamic that we as New Testament believers enjoy where we have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, who goes with us everywhere that we go. So as we are following Christ, the Holy Spirit is with us. He is there encouraging us, enabling us, exhorting us that this is the right way to walk. This is the reminder that we have. We have God who lives inside of us who says, you ought to be following Christ. That's why when you don't follow Christ, it's not comfortable for you. Because if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is inside of you being grieved. He's pricking your conscience. He's convicting. He's reminding you, this is not what your priorities ought to be. This is not how you ought to be living. Remember, you are a disciple of Christ. You are to be loving him and following him. Notice there in verse 16, this comforter, the Holy Spirit, is going to live with us. He's going to abide with us forever. Now, his ministry is very important, and it's not tonight intended to be a message about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but I will say that without the Holy Spirit, we couldn't live for Christ. We couldn't follow Christ. When we think about what we typically would do, well, our default setting is to please ourselves and to love ourselves. But that keeps us from loving Christ the way that we ought to love Christ. So we need someone to remind us and then to enable us to love Christ the way that we ought. And that someone is the Holy Spirit of God. So when he talks about this comforter who's going to abide with us forever, he's talking to men at this time, John 14, who are physically in his presence. So you you have to exercise your imagination a little bit. They are physically in the presence of Jesus. Now, let me ask you a question. Did these men, Peter, James, John, the other apostles, did they love Jesus? Yes, they did. They loved him. They loved him supremely. They had demonstrated that now for like three years. They had been following Jesus. They had forsaken everything. 
They had followed after Christ. They were convinced that he's the Messiah. They knew who he was. They'd put their faith in him. And I realized that their, their understanding was a little bit incomplete. Yes, but they still had this assurance that Jesus is, he is the Christ. They love him. He's there. He's in their presence. They love him. But what is about to change is that Jesus will no longer physically be present with them. Jesus is going to depart from their presence. He's going to die, and of course, he's going to, uh, after he raises from the dead, he's going to appear to them a number of times. But then, Acts chapter 1, he's going to ascend back to heaven. He's no longer going to be physically in their presence, and therefore, they are no longer going to have that physical reminder We love Jesus. There he is. We're following him. So they're going to need another reminder. And that reminder is this other comforter who's mentioned in verse 16. And part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to remind true believers about their love. You love Jesus. He is to be supreme. You are to follow him. Are you you with me here? Okay, so then he goes on in verse 17 And he refers to the Comforter as the Spirit of Truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. And so he says to the the disciples, you know, the world is not going to understand this, because the world does not have the Holy Spirit. They don't know him. They don't relate to him. They can't see him. They can't know him, but you know him. He lives inside of you. And if you've been saved, you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, that's because there's a problem with your relationship with God. So the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, and he is described as the spirit of truth. Now, something that is very interesting about the relationship between loving and following and the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit's primary function is going to center on the Word of God. So now, you know, before this time, for the disciples, Jesus walked with them. He is the living Word. He spoke to them. Every time He spoke, they were listening to the words of God. They had Jesus in their presence. But now things are going to change because Jesus is going to heaven. The Spirit of God is going to move in, and the Spirit of God is not going to minister to them through dreams and hunches. He's going to minister to them through the word of truth. Many people who talk about the Holy Spirit really have no comprehension of who the Holy Spirit is, and the way that you can know that they don't know who the Holy Spirit is is because they talk about the Holy Spirit as if he's some kind of a mystical creature that is always giving them dreams and hunches. Everything is dreams and hunches. Instead of directing their attention to the Word of God so that they might better follow Jesus Christ. His specific ministry is to direct us in following Jesus through written revelation. He's going to use the word of God because he is the spirit of truth to contradict our flesh and to teach us what it means to follow after Christ. In verse 17, 
as he's called the spirit of truth, we're reminded that we know him because he dwells in us. He is in us. We're also told that this comforter will teach us all things and bring all things to our remembrance. Now, I believe that that is a specific promise to the apostles there in verse 26 is what I'm referencing. It's a specific promise to the apostles with an application to us. And I'll explain what I mean. It's specific to the apostles in that the apostles did not have the completed revelation. They walked with Jesus, but after Jesus goes back to heaven, they are going to be responsible for completing the written revelation. And the way that they are going to complete that written revelation, specifically what we're reading right now, the Gospels, specifically the Epistles, the way that they are going to write those things is that the Holy Spirit is going to move on them and is going to bring all things to their remembrance. All the things that are pertinent about the person of Jesus that need to be revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are going to come to their remembrance through the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God. So he's going to remind them, and they are going to record that, and that is going to become significant for us. So for the apostles, he would perform a ministry of reminding them of his teachings so that they, in turn, could be eyewitnesses of Christ and his glory. For us, the Holy Spirit, who is the Comforter, takes those same scriptures which now have been completed. There is no more new revelation. So he takes the scriptures that have already been completed and he now performs the ministry of illuminating our understanding so that when we come to the scriptures, we can actually understand what it means. An unregenerate person can read the scriptures intellectually. They can parse the language but it makes no spiritual sense to them. But a person who's been regenerated, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts through the Word of God. This is how God directs us. This is what it means to follow Christ. I'm going to say that again. This is what it means to follow Christ. Many people have a mystical idea of following Christ. They have this idea that they're going to kind of like feel their way through life and Christ is leading them and they're following. And I, I don't mean to take away from the personal aspect because it is a personal relationship. And certainly God is able to speak to us. He's able to use different circumstances, but primarily the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us through his word. And so us following Christ is going to look a lot like us following God's word, because that is how we follow Christ. The comforter is going to be our reminder to teach us to follow Christ, and the place that he's going to put our attention is on that which God has said. And one of the specific things that the Holy Spirit teaches us from the word of God is about the love of God for us. Now we're connecting this thought back to the first thought, which is there is a relationship between loving and following. So the Holy Spirit is going to use the word of God to communicate to us about God's love for us 
which is going to generate a desire in us to want to follow the Lord more and more, and it becomes a regenerative cycle in our life of being reminded about the love for the Lord, our, our, the love of God for us, choosing to love God by following Him, learning more about who He is, which in turn reminds us of His love for us, which in turn reminds us that we ought to follow Him, and it's the Holy Spirit who is the administrator of this. It's the Holy Spirit who is doing this in us. We know this from Romans 8.15, where the Scripture says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verses 34 through 39, give us a clear picture and explanation of the assurance that the Spirit of God gives us that God loves us. And that assurance of God's love is what gives us the energy then to follow Christ, even in the midst of difficulty. All right, so there's a relationship between loving and following. We ought to follow Christ because we love Him. There is one who reminds us about loving Christ and following Him. But then the Lord speaks in verses 21 through 23 about the reward of loving and following Christ. It's not all about what you give up. There's a lot that you gain when you follow Christ. And this is where it's appropriate to talk about the other side of counting the cost. Many times when people think of counting the cost of following Christ, they're thinking of what they're going to give up. But I think part of counting the cost is also what you will gain. You need to think about what you will gain so that you can have a proper look at this equation and make an informed decision, should I follow Christ or not? Jesus says in verses 21, 22, and 23 that there is a reward for loving and following. What is this reward? Well, according to verse 21, he that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So we know that God loves us, but when we follow him out of love, it, it causes him, according to verse 21, to love us. And it causes Jesus to love us, and it causes Jesus to manifest himself to us. The word manifest is a very important word. It means to plainly show or to declare something. So when we follow Christ, we will experience the love of God. We will know what it is to have a relationship with God. We will fall more in love with Him, and it will become clearer to us who it is that we are following. When we think about following Christ, it brings us to a place of experiencing even more fully the love of the Father and of Christ for us. Again, I think marriage is a great illustration of this because, and I, we have a number of young couples that have gotten married in the last couple of years at our church. I do a lot of premarital counseling, and actually, I really enjoy premarital counseling. I, it, it's a great opportunity for me to spend with a young couple that's getting ready to get married that's going to be in our church, to, to speak into their life, to give them wisdom from God's Word. But one of the things that I try to communicate to young couples is, 
I know it's hard for you to believe because you're really in love with each other right now. But as you are married longer and longer, your love for one another will grow deeper and deeper. It, it'll be different. It won't be, uh, and, and what we've experienced is, it doesn't, it doesn't have the ups and downs as much. It's more of a steady love. But my love for my wife here as we're approaching the 20-year mark of our marriage is not as intense. It is more intense than it was when we first got married. As much as we were in love then, we have fallen more in love as our hearts have been knitted together. And you know, this is what happens in our relationship with God. As we walk with Him, as we follow Him through His Word, as we obey His commandments, as we please Him, as we experience His love for us, we fall more in love with Him. And we get to know Him more intimately. We get to know the mind of God. We get to know what it is to know God personally. I'm telling you that there are many people sitting in churches today who call themselves Christians and have no idea what it means to have a real relationship with God. I mean, they don't know that you can walk with God. They don't know that God can be real to them. And many of them are looking for some kind of a hair-raising experience. They're looking to have some kind of a feeling, to go to a meeting and have something happen where the hair stands up on the back of their neck and they go, ooh, I met with God. But that's not what it's all about. You see, the way that God is going to meet with us and that we're going to get to know Him is through His Word, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, also in verse 19, Jesus says this, Yet a little while in the world seeth me no more, but ye see me. Because I live, ye shall live also. This is, I don't have time to dig into this as far as I would like to, but what Jesus is talking about is the resurrected life, right? Because he is going to go to the cross, he's going to die, be buried, He's going to raise again, and he's telling them, I am, I am going to live, and you are going to live. And we find all through the New Testament that that resurrection power that we find through the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ is how Christ wants us to live. He wants us to have real life. This is something that the world cannot offer. The world does not have real life. The world says, if you do this, you can have fun. The world even goes so far as to say, if you can get this, you can really live. But it's false. It's not real. It's empty. It's, it's temporal. It's short-lasting. But what God offers is real life. Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 10, I am come that ye might have life and that ye might have it more abundantly. And scripturally, if we define life, life is relationship with God. So what we find is that if you will love and follow him, if you will be a disciple indeed, if you will be a true follower of Christ, then you can know what it is to have a relationship with God. 
you can live the resurrection life. Didn't the Apostle Paul talk about that in Philippians chapter 3? About what he aspired to, living the resurrected life? This is what every one of us should aspire to. I want to live not my life, but the life of Christ through me. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20. I want to live that life. Verse 23, we find a third reward of loving and following Christ. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he'll keep my words. Now notice this. And my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. That means the Lord is going to come, and he is going to live with us. But did you notice? Jesus is going to live with us. The Father is going to live with us. And we already know the Spirit is going to live with us. In other words, we are going to have a living, vibrant, true, intimate relationship with the triune God. This is where the doctrine of the Trinity goes from theory to practice. Because now I am going to have the triune God abiding with me, living with me, empowering me, because I have chosen to follow him. Is there a reason to follow Christ? Yes. Actually, what is being spoken about in John 14 is why we were made. This is how we were designed. This is how our creator made us to dwell with God. This is what we are for. We are particularly designed for this. And here's what Jesus is saying. If you will follow me, then you can know what it is to fulfill the reason that you were created. And anyone who does not follow Christ will not understand that. They will fail to realize what God has made them for. They will live their entire life trying to find satisfaction, meaning, purpose in things that will never satisfy them, things that will never fill them up. And so is there a reason to follow Christ? Yes, there is every reason in the world. And tonight, I want to conclude by asking you the question, do you love Christ? Do you follow Christ because of love? or because of duty and obligation? Are you constrained by the love of Christ? Do you desire to please Him, to live for Him, to follow after Him? Perhaps tonight, if you find at times that the commandments of God are grievous, it's because there is a love issue that needs to be addressed. You see, the constraint of discipleship is, I love Him, therefore I follow Him. And the question tonight is, do you love him?